The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through mission, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Good morning. Please stand for the reading of God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread to feed so many? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to John 6. If you don't, you're welcome to use the uh, back of your order of worship here. We're going to be looking through this passage, and I'm going to make reference to it so just so you know that you'll have it nearby. The reason that we have a children's sermon um, is because we want our kids with us as much as is possible. We want them to see what Jesus is like, to see what Jesus is teaching us to be convicted by sin, to lift their little voices when it comes time to talk about the sermon, we want them to have somebody who has thoughtfully applied it to the life of a seven-year-old, and so we want to be educationally sensitive to them, and so it's not that we're getting rid of them, they're going to come back before the end of the service, but we just want to be educationally sensitive to them and their needs, and that's why we have a children's service only during the sermon portion of what we do. You noticed in the passage, it's John 6. For those of you who know Jesus and for those of you who feel very far away from Jesus, this is not an unfamiliar story. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Jesus feeds the multitudes. It's actually the only story, the only story that all four of the gospel writers say, I've got to have this one in there. Other than the resurrection of Jesus, it's the only miracle that all four gospel writers put in there. Why? To us, it's like when Jesus threw a big, giant buffet, and it's like, great. All those people went and got hungry the next day. Nobody was cured for the rest of their life in this particular story. Nobody was lame and then could walk. 
Nobody was blind and then could see. All of these people who have human need were filled up only for them to need it again. Why would the four Gospel writers focus so much on this story? Some of you in here think about the fact that it may just not be likely that this story happened. Perhaps the little boy generously gave his lunch and then all these people who were being selfish thought, you know what, I'll give some of my lunch too and I'll give some of my lunch too. And ultimately, after all of that, everyone shared their lunches and that's really what the miracle was of feeding of the multitude. Rankin Wilborn's one of my favorite preachers and he helps me to understand that, that all four of the Gospels were probably published somewhere between 30 or 40 years after the events in which they detail. That means if there are 5,000 men and really we're to believe that there's 15,000 people there because they would have only counted dudes at that time, which is not fair, but it's how they would have done it. There's 5,000 men. It's the that they seated the men around. So it's just men there is 5,000. It's probably 15,000 when you consider people like the little boy who was there as well. And if you're telling a story to a group of people that 15,000 people could go, oh yeah, that didn't happen. I was there, that didn't happen. You might not tell it that way. We are beginning to conclude that that this could have been disproven and widely discredited. But instead, it passed on for years and years and years because, as Rankin says, that's the way it was. 15,000 people. Four different gospel writers tell this story. Why do you think it matters so much? Why do you think they focus on it? The reason that they focus on it is is because all of us, whether we know it or not, are in a state of need, a state of deficit, a state of not having enough. And the Bible is filled with all of these stories of us not having enough, and yet God meets His people's needs. Us not doing enough, and yet God meets his people's needs. It's actually why when you learn how to preach the Bible about grace, you stop on this emphasis of, and so you must go do this. You must go do this. It's not because there aren't commands in the Bible. Of course there are commands in the Bible. But the reason that we have to stop preaching like that is because ultimately the Bible is full of stories of what you don't have and how God meets your need in it. And most has this story of the Exodus and the Passover and Jesus is basically pointing to Himself in this moment and saying, I'm the greater Moses. So what is it that you're struggling with? Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's just literally being assaulted by your thoughts every day of, I don't have enough, I'm not good enough, I'm too messed up. I can't turn things around. I can't get it together. Maybe it's depression. There's nothing good about me. If anyone knew what was in my heart, they wouldn't be near me. Maybe it's the spiritual shame you have over addictions of, I just am so messed up. I'm so broken. I'm so addicted. Maybe it's just this hole in your relationships where you see that they're so 
dysfunctional, and there's no way you can turn them around. This passage is for you. This week, I began to see for the very first time I would have ever used this word for myself. This week, I began to see how I could be narcissistic. My wife and I have been in marriage counseling for the last year, and it it was a great session, and she was really helpful and kind. But as I'm processing and struggling through this, and I'm thinking about it later, and I'm praying, it occurred to me that my life operates and it orbits around me. What I give to people is because what they'll think of me. What I want from people is because it'll help me in some way. And that falls short in a marriage is because no one will ever know what Aaron thinks about me. And so it's a place where you can still make things wildly about yourself and not about others. So here I stand before you with a beginning but growing awareness of what is wrong with me. And I think that's where we stop. We think there is really something broken about us. There is something really fundamentally ugly and selfish and broken. We don't have enough. And this story is the confirmation that yes, you don't have enough, but God will meet your need. God will meet your need. Would you pray with me? Ask God to bless our study of His Word this morning. Lord, would You have mercy on me, a sinner. We are tempted to read the Bible about what we should or should not do. What we should or should not have. Instead, we humbly bow down and realize the Bible is helping us to realize what we don't have in ourselves and yet what we do have in Christ. Help us to experience that afresh. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You've seen the movie Yesterday. Yesterday is a British comedy that's just come out in 2019. It's this incredible story. Very unique in the sense that this guy, a struggling musician, Jack, he's tried to be enough. He's tried to have a career. He's held on to the dream well longer than most people do. He's still playing in empty bars for his friends. But he's held on to this thing that I have enough I can, I'm trying to be enough. I'm trying to make a life with this. Well, the turning of the story is that he's in this sort of scary bicycle crash where at the same time where he's in a crash, the entire world, there's a global blackout. And when he comes to, he starts to realize one interesting thing. Do you know what it is? Nobody remembers the Beatles. None of their songs, not their names. Nobody remembers the Beatles. And as he starts figuring this out, he starts Googling it, and it won't autofill. And so he starts to think, what if I just pretend? What if I become the Beatles? No one will ever know. And these dreams that I've had of making it, of making it on my own, I'll just put aside and I'll begin pretending. I'll begin acting as if I have made it. And I'll sing the Beatles songs. It's a real sweet, 
whole story. Where he's wrestling with his growing global popularity because everybody loves Beatles music. How about that? But not only that, about how much of a fraud he feels like on the inside because ultimately he knows it's not coming from within inside him. And so he pretends. This is what we do. When we feel inadequate or insufficient, we begin pretending that it's in there that it's not. Henry Nouwen has described it this way. Listen closely because it's a little nuanced. He said, the secular or false self that is fabricated, and then he quotes Thomas Merton, is by social compulsion. It's indeed the best adjective for the false self. It points to the ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? I'm the one who is liked and praised and admired and disliked and hated or despised. If being busy is a good thing, then I'll be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing people proves my importance, that one's mine, I will have to make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing. The steady urge to prevent this by gathering more of the same, more work, more money, more friends. What he's saying is, is that when we start to realize we are insufficient in ourselves, that we are in a deficit, that we are broken, we will begin pretending, we will begin acting as if those things are real and that we have access to them and that that will begin to become who we really are. We just want more and more is never enough. All that to say, this is what Jesus is exposing here, is that all of us have that tendency to act like we're the Beatles when we're really a struggling artist. To act like we have it all together when really we're broken. To act like our marriage is perfect when really it's a mess. And we get so focused on presenting what we are that we haven't been honest about what we currently are. So to experience the power of Jesus, you must acknowledge your desperation. Your desperation. The first way that comes out is encountering your own will. Look with me in verses 1-3. through After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain where he now sat down with his disciples. Passover was the feast of the Jews was at hand. And then if you look a little bit down in verse 14, it says this, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. To really experience Jesus' power, first you have to encounter your own will and be honest about it. It says right in the text, the reason these people are following Jesus is because that guy can walk around and heal all of our problems. Or that guy can walk around and create bread out of nothing. Or out of something small. Or that guy, that guy could be our king. He could bring us to prominence. He could make us special again. And we have to encounter our own will. Some want him to be a healer. Some want him to be a military king. But ultimately, they have a false and limited view of Jesus that he's a bread maker or he's a general, as Moody says. And it's not just these guys who have to encounter their own will. We can smile at these people who laugh 
and think, hey, yeah, let's let Jesus make us bread, or let's let Jesus heal our blindness. But ultimately, John and James, two of the closest ones to him, will whisper up to Jesus and go, hey, I know you're busy and everything with dying for our sins, but would you mind if in your time you'd let us sit at the top, sit at the front? Even his own disciples will encounter their own will that really they follow Jesus because it gets them something. We have to admit that we have an agenda when we follow Jesus. My mentor Joe Novenson says this, Jesus never asks my opinion and He always disagrees with me. But He's always right. If you're having a hard time seeing what are the ways that you follow Jesus for, what are the ways that you follow Jesus and sort of putting Him on your agenda, let me ask you this. What are the things that Jesus should have done for you? It's hard to think in abstract about the things that you might be selfishly maybe following Jesus for, but as you consider your faith, what are the things in your mind that Jesus should have done for you? He should have helped you more with your marriage. He should have given you a baby when you asked. He should have brought you a husband when you pleaded for one. He should have taken away the pains of your family. He should have given you a better job and more money. He should have given you a better life. He should have caused you to be not so lonely. And we end up experiencing this sense of, I didn't think I had an agenda for Jesus, but I resent Him because He should have done this for me. And ultimately, that's what these people are saying is that He could do something for me and so I'll follow Him. So if you really want to follow Jesus, you have to lay down your agenda. What should Jesus have done for you? It's when you experience that deficit that you're presuming upon Him that He should have filled. It tells you that I followed Jesus so I could get this. Maybe some of you have seen the movie the Greatest Showman. Have you seen that? Don't tell anybody this. I secretly love that girl movie. Even though it's um, kind of handsome and they deal with Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron, and even though it's sort of a romantic comedy, I love that movie. And I kind of like to sing it when I'm by myself. But there's a scene in the movie where this girl who has this incredible voice, she's played by Rebecca Ferguson, and she's singing and she's this amazing face, an amazing voice, and she's before all of these people who are cleaned up, and she starts singing. All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Powers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. Never be enough. And then she, remember, she starts singing, and he's looking at her, and they're all looking at her, and she's singing. I'm not going to sing it for you, but She's singing, never be enough. No, I'm not going to sing it for you. Never be enough. Again and again. Never, never. And it sounds exactly like that. Never be enough. What I want you to understand is that if you are following Jesus with an agenda to make your life more comfortable, to make you more prominent, Whatever you think He's holding out on you, it will never be enough. It will always ring empty inside. You have to admit 
that you are following Jesus, that I selfishly and ugly, ugly, have followed Jesus for my own gain. You encounter your own will, but you also encounter your own weaknesses. You see poor Philip in verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes, then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here with barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for someone for so many? Jesus said this to test him. John tells us that Jesus knows what he's about to do. So why bother? Why embarrass Philip? Why embarrass Andrew? Why do it? It's because he wants him to know his limits. He wants him to know his insufficiency. He wants him to know his weakness. He wants him to actually admit that he doesn't have enough. Essentially, he wants him to be honest about his own weakness. He he says, Philip says, we don't have enough money. I literally, we, we just don't have the cash for it. Andrew says, we don't have enough food. I mean, we have food, but we don't have enough food for all of these people. And he is doing this to cause them to encounter their own limitations because when you encounter your own limitations, you can experience the abundance of God. And that's what he's trying to do. Have you yet encountered your own weakness? That you don't have enough. That you'll never be enough. My brothers and I, when I was a little kid, my oldest brother was five years older than me, so we could go to 7-Eleven and get food and stuff on the way home from school. And what we started to do is we would start it calling busting a fix, which I'm not sure what little kid language was that or what it could have alluded to, but then we called it bust and a fix. And so we would stop by and all grab like Slurpees and a Snickers and open a bag of chips. And so one time we're driving by there and my brother Jeremy says to my brother Josh, hey dude, I don't have any money right now. Do you have any money? And my brother Josh says, I got all money. I got all money. So we go in there, we get the Slurpees going. I'm already working on mine. I'm opening beef jerky. My brother Jeremy is just biting into a Snickers. We bring it all up onto the counter. And Jeremy looks at Josh and is like, hey, dude, we need all that money. And Josh goes, empties his pocket and goes, bam, and drops two quarters on the counter. We are already working our way through these snacks. And he looks and goes, dude, what are you talking about? And he's like, I, I didn't think you meant, like, I needed to pay for everything. I just, I had money. And we just sort of leave everything on the counter and slowly back away from the register because we were in deficit even though we think we had all money have you come to a place where you realize you're in a deficit you're not close to turning things all around and living a great life you're not close to being in a place where you can meet all of the needs that are required of you you're not close to having it all together you're in a deficit And Jesus knows that. He doesn't resent you for being in deficit. He wants you to know what to do with your deficit. 
you don't have the resources. You're broken. I'm broken. I'm becoming more aware of that all the time. You don't have the money. You don't have the emotional resources to walk through this divorce. You don't have the emotional resources to guide yourself meaningfully through this infertility. You don't have the resources to feel so alone and discouraged and depressed and to yet pull it all together. You don't have the resources. You've had your own agenda and you've been bankrupt as I have been in my own resources. And so what do you do? You do what the little boy does. You look to Jesus alone to provide. Look with me in verse 10 and 11. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when He had given thanks, He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples. Eaten their fill. Now what we don't hear in this passage, but we hear in another passage in Mark, talking about this same experience as when Jesus gets up on the hill. It says in Mark, He landed and saw a large crowd, and He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So He began teaching in many things. To really experience Jesus in your deficit, you have to dismantle what it is that you think He thinks of you. Because if you're like me, you think He thinks of you that you're needy, that you're sinful, that you're dirty, that you're shameful, that you're a mess, that you're not trying hard enough. But when Jesus looks at you and He sees His people filled with this hill and they have no one to lead them or to teach them, He doesn't say, oh, it's these people again. It says He's filled with compassion. His heart is heavy for them. You will never begin to experience the fullness of life until you realize that what you think God thinks about you is wrong. That He sees you with compassion. That means God has more of a problem with the problems in your life than you do. God has more of a problem with the problems in your life than you do. The stuff that trips you up is bothersome. That death and sin has gotten in. That it's weaseled its way into your relationships, into your marriage, into your hope, into your prayers. It bothers Him. He sees your pain. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Your problems matter to Him so much that they bother Him. You don't bother. You don't bother Him. God sees you with compassion. But more than that, God meets provision. Did you see? He has them sit down and they feed 5,000 men, which is 15,000 people easily. He feeds them. And He feeds them in abundance. He's referencing here the reason they bring up the Passover is because way back when, when Moses was taking God's people out of Egypt and into the promised land and they wandered through the desert and there was nothing for them to eat and so the people start to complain about him and God says, I will meet your needs. You're here in a dry place in a desert. I will meet your needs. And so he rains bread from heaven. Literally drops it on the ground for them in the morning for them to pick up and make into bread. But Moses, when he's doing it, there's no leftover. There's no leftover. 
there's nothing in the morning that they can hold on to for the next day. He did that so that they would begin to understand that He will meet their needs. They don't have to worry about the next day because He's going to meet their needs then. So Moses, in this powerful way, leads God's people by teaching them about God's daily provision. And Jesus says, you think you had it good with Moses when I provide for you? When I provide for you, there will be leftovers. I will meet your needs. If you'll trust me. If you'll trust me. That's who trusted. This little boy. Rankin Wilborn says this, In the hands of Jesus, the insignificant becomes significant. The sufficient, insufficient becomes sufficient. What do I have left to give? It's so little. My resources are so little. My heart has so little left. My spiritual resources are dried up. I don't have energy. I, don't, I can't sleep. That's where He calls you to know that you had an agenda. To be honest about the fact that you don't have much to give. To be honest about the fact that Jesus sees you with compassion and that Jesus makes provision for you. But the reason in the story that we know that He makes provision is because the little boy gives up his lunch. He takes something insignificant and makes it significant, insufficient, and makes it sufficient. And you'd say, yeah, I'd like to do that, Jared, but I don't have anything to give. Kent Hughes quotes an amazing quote by Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot, a godly woman, and she said this, if the only thing you have to offer is a broken heart, you offer a broken heart. So in a time of grief, the recognition that this material for sacrifice has been a great strength for me. Listen to her. Realizing that nothing I have, nothing I am, will be refused on the part of Christ. I simply give it to Him as the little boy gave his five loaves and two fishes with the same feeling of the disciples. What is it good for that many? So this grief, this loss, loss, this suffering, this pain, whatever it is which at the moment God means a testing of my faith and bringing me to the recognition of who He is, that is the thing that I can offer. Friends, when we're finally honest and realize we just don't have that much to give Him, He says, give it anyway. Bet on me. Put it in my hands. It's actually faith that shows that He can do a, a lot with a little. And when you do that, you'll experience His sufficiency and leftovers. It doesn't start with much. Five loaves, two fish, and yet it makes it enough for 15,000. It's that He can be trusted. So you put what little you have at His feet. They gathered up extra. Rankin says this, God's power is available to you only to the measure you admit your need of it. You cannot be a channel of God's power until you see your own powerlessness. You see your own powerlessness. That's what's going on here, my friends. He doesn't appreciate the fact that not only God can feed him, but that God could feed others through him. God can feed the little boy and He can feed others through him. So when you begin to experience Jesus, you'll experience an abundance, but you'll also end up being this channel of good to others. 
What are the things that you think are so little it's not even worth giving to God? In fact, they're the things that cause you shame and embarrassment and difficulty. And we don't want to turn it over to Him, not realizing that it will be abundance not just for us, but for others when we turn it over to Him. He gives us provision and abundance, and He does that not just for us, but through us. Imagine if Restoration Southside, which every hard loss we take, every ugly moment, every suffering, every limp, every pain, if that had been given and channeled not just for us, the good that comes, but also for the others, that we were learning and we were encouraging and we were feeding off of each other because God had kept us near to Him. He fed us and through, and He fed others through us. close with this. There's a story that he tells in his exploration on this sermon Rankin, and he says this. He once went to an all-black church. He's a young pastor, wanted to learn about different kinds of church, different kinds of cultures regarding church, and he goes into this place, and he's seeing the worship and how different it is for him. But he says he'll never forget the pastor who's preaching on this verse on John 6. And the pastor says, it makes hell break out in hives when you thank the Lord for not enough. It makes hell break out in hives when you thank the Lord for not enough. Not enough job, not enough money, not enough husband, not enough wife, not enough acclaim, not enough health. Because what you're saying is is that I am grateful for the little bit I have and I'm going to give it to you. And that makes the devil nervous. Friends, what are the little things in your life that you need to thank God for not enough? Because you know when you experience not enough through Him and for others, you'll experience an abundance. So lay down your agenda. Lay down your perceived strength. Come to Him in His provision. Come to Him in humility. Knowing that He has compassion for you when He sees you. He will make provision for you and it will be enough for you and others to share. Maybe the things in your life that you think are your biggest problems right now are the very things you want to use to bring you abundance to yourself I have an agenda every time I draw near your son. When I'm honest, I admit that I'm not enough. I'll never be enough. But I delight in the fact that in all of that, he sees me with compassion. He will make provision, an abundant provision, not just for me, but for the people around me. Would you help us to show that we can put whatever it is, whatever little it might be, in Your hands. Because we know that You'll be compassionate, that You'll make provision, that it'll be abundance for us and for others. Help us to learn to say thank You for not enough.
in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.